Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news that already today has been um, proclaimed, it has been prayed, it has been sung. And Lord, as we submit ourselves one more uh, time to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit uh, work in us to accomplish everything you so desire, uh, that we would show fruits of repentance and of worship, of holiness, and a longing for others to see your beauty. We pray all this in your name. Amen. In Vienna, 1824, one of the most famous works of music was debuted by one of the most famous composers of all time. This piece was revolutionary not only for its symphonic beauty, but actually because it introduced to much criticism, actually, something which historically was not present in the symphony, and that was the element of human voice. And as the whole movement of the symphony progressed throughout its story, uh, through tumult and trial, this piece, accompanied by a myriad of human voices, came to symbolize and create in the audience a sense of wars and tumult and trauma finally ending and the triumph of brotherhood, of unity, and of peace. Technically, this piece is called the prelude to the fourth movement of Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, but it's commonly called Ode to Joy. And the gravitas of Ode to Joy is so immense that the Council of Europe, what is now the EU, adopted it as their national anthem in 1975. The original lyrics, which were written in German and borrowed from a German poet, rang of something divine to unify all of mankind in joy. And Beethoven was not a born-again believer. He believed in what many do in America, something what I call the God goo. They believe that there's a God, but it's not the Trinitarian God of Scripture. Beethoven had no, no desire to worship or follow Jesus Christ at all, but they affirmed some divinity that was above them who was generally a charitable creature, kind of a Santa Claus in the sky type thing. And so what happened um, is that his masterpiece that he wrote acknowledged some divine need and it smacked with the hope that he was so close to and yet so far from, and that is the hope of Christianity. And the lyrics as they ring forward, no German lyrics ever sung sound optimistic, but these were meant to. It always sounds kind of like Germany's history. But uh, it was meant to produce this optimism and he's calling the audience to look to the heavens and to see the creator and it ends with this hope where he says, beyond the stars, he must dwell. And today we encounter our own ode to joy as two women who we've been following in the story of the Gospel of Luke exclaim together something wonderful, joy, blessing, and hope abound from the lips of Mary and Elizabeth, but their joy is even greater than the hope of Beethoven. Because Beethoven hoped in a God who might lie beyond the stars, but the genesis of these songs today come from the God who stepped down from behind the stars, 
who condescended and took on flesh as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And this beautiful event marked the beginning of a new and distinct joy, not only for the two characters in this story, but for all of Christendom in which we ourselves find ourselves as part of that story. And what we're going to see today is a meeting between Mary, who is going to bear Christ the Lord, and her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant at the time, six months pregnant, with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And between these two messages, we're not only going to see their responses of joy, but we're going to see the source and substance of their joy. Source and substance, which are yours today, if you rejoice in what they rejoice in, which is the promise of God fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look in Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to that. I should do that too. It's a good place to start for the preacher. Um, We're going to be in Luke 1, and we're going to see five pictures of joy in these two ecstatic songs and utterances of Elizabeth and Mary. And the five portraits of joy we're going to see, I'm going to say them right now, don't worry about writing them down, they'll be on the screens, note takers can relax, is shared joy, thoughtful joy, fearful joy, humble joy, and hopeful joy. And the message of deep joy begins with a little bit of context today, Luke gives us, and this is in verses 39 and 40. It reads, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So if you're just joining us today, we're working through the gospel of Luke, and this passage needs the passage we saw last week. And in that passage, Gabriel appears to Mary and announces to her the miracle of the virgin conception. And he gives her a sign. He says, Elizabeth, your cousin, the one who was barren, is no longer barren. She is now with child. And so Mary sees in the, or hears in the announcement of not only her miraculous conception, but in Elizabeth's miraculous conception, proof that God is able to do impossible things. And last week it concluded that Mary believed, let it be to your Lord's servant as he has willed. She believed Gabriel, even in just hearing of Elizabeth. But as faith should do in the hearts of believers is faith seeks greater understanding. It seeks greater certainty. And so it's with great haste, Luke tells us, that Mary began the journey to go visit Elizabeth so that her faith might be even stronger, that she might see even more fully the wonderful works of God. And so here she leaves her town in the north and travels down to the hill country of Judah in the south, a little bit north of Jerusalem, and she enters the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And if you were Mary wanting proof of what the angel said, you might simply want to see Elizabeth's baby bump and say, aha, she is indeed pregnant, therefore I can have confidence. But actually what God is about to do is to bring greater confidence to her. her. In fact, Elizabeth is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and without having any prior knowledge is going to know exactly what happened to Mary. This is going to be confidence unparalleled in this text. And the result of this is joy Enjoy abundantly. And this is where we encounter our first point today. As Mary comes to Elizabeth, we encounter the beauty of shared joy. Read with me Luke 1, 41 through 45. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here in this brief passage, we have four main characters. We've got John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, his mother. We've got her cousin, Mary, who is going to bear Christ the Lord. And then we also have God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the result of all of this fellowship is leaping, shrieking, and encouraging joy. And all of this begins as John in the womb hears Mary's voice and leaps. Now, I'm not a woman, but I am the son of a woman. I'm the husband of a woman. And I have experienced from the outside a baby kick and scrape and do baby things. I've never, thanks be to God, had a baby kick me from inside. Something doesn't sound super pleasurable. But here, this baby leaped inside of Elizabeth. I don't know if that's normal. Is that normal? Sounds pretty abnormal. My wife has never said that. We've had four kids. And so there's this leaping, this something ecstatic that's happening inside of it. And we see two things in this is first, that it was the child in the womb who was already so filled with the Holy Spirit since his conception, Gabriel said, who first recognized the miracle of fulfillment that was coming in Mary. John didn't leap because he was hungry or because mom had too much sriracha the night before. John leapt because the wall of his mother's belly could not conceal the miracle that was about to happen in Mary. God's presence was abounding in a unique way. And if there were anything which should shape the church's zeal for the unborn, it ought to be the worship of John the Baptist in the womb. You can categorize movements opposed to abortion as pro-life or as conservative, and those are all generally true and good, but on the whole, it should simply be categorized as Christian. It is our privilege as a church to partner with CareNet. We financially, in our budget, if you're giving to Sovereign Hope, you are supporting CareNet financially. We also have a ministry called Meals for Moms, which seeks to give mothers who have had children um, and used CareNet's resources food for the first weeks and month of their, pregnant, or of their, their motherhood. Um, and then we also have, in the back, you'll see the Meals for Moms crew has a playpen back there where you can donate items, diapers, clothes, formula, and those can also be given as care packages to those who chose life. But almost just as important as meeting and supporting these needs are the emotional needs of those who find themselves in situations of unwanted pregnancies or have even already had abortions. I was at a CareNet function earlier this year, and they said a stat that was rather astounding, and that is that 36%, that is over three of every 10 women who have an abortion self-identify as women who frequently attend church. Which means that the church needs to be a safe place for women who are dealing with this to come and talk and to experience grace in Jesus. No one is asking you 
to turn a blind eye to the circumstances which might have led to that pregnancy. But we can deal with all of that while also celebrating and caring for the image bearer whom God is knitting together in the womb of a woman who is probably vulnerable, ashamed, fearful, and scared. Sin is real, shame is painful, repentance is powerful, grace is available, and the church is meant to be a community which gives care and compassion in these moments. Moments which statistically are already in our church. And so if you are a young lady, I want you to hear now, before this happens, that we want to help you that you do not have to bear this alone, you do not have, not have to make this decision alone, you do not have to talk to your parents alone, that your elders at this church, your fellow members who have covenanted to love Jesus along with you, to practice repentance and compassion, to follow God's word to the best of our ability and to repent when there have been failings, we want to help you, we want to even rejoice with you, not at the circumstances, but at the miracle of life that God is bringing in your womb, at the meaning that both you and that baby have, not only to us, but to the God who sent his son as a baby to save you and to redeem you so that you might love him and give your life to him. If that's you or if you know somebody, you could come talk to me, but I understand that coming and talking to a man who's a pastor or another elder might be awkward for you. Find another lady in this church and talk to them because we want to equip you to feel the care of Jesus and the compassion of the church. But not only does John point us to children in the womb, he also points Elizabeth to the work of God. It was John's joyful gymnastics which alerted Elizabeth to, that something amazing had happened. Elizabeth didn't know what was going on. Mary didn't send a text message previously and say, you won't guess what happened to me. And yet, as Mary showed up, and as John rejoiced, the Holy Spirit rushed upon Elizabeth and she knew everything that had happened in last week's text. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and this knowledge of God's immense power of the God with whom nothing is impossible, the God who hears the prayer of those who are in humble estate. When that happened and she knew it, she exclaimed, Luke makes it quite clear to us, quite loudly in joy. She proclaims blessing on Mary, blessing on the child who would be born to Mary. She praises Mary for her deep faith, even when things seemed difficult and hard to understand. And then she also expressed in great humility her own privilege that the mother of her Lord would come and visit her. How much joy should we, who don't have the privilege of receiving the mother of the Lord, but have the privilege of receiving Christ through faith, how much more should we rejoice in our humble estate? specifically this Advent season, that Christ has visited us. But here's what's important to notice in this first section. If you had to think about what would give you certainty and joy, you might write up the experiences of Mary and Elizabeth. Both of them had divine encounters unparalleled. Gabriel appeared to Mary and spelled out exactly what was going to happen. 
Elizabeth is six months pregnant with a miraculous message that was proclaimed to her husband, who is now mute as a result of his own unbelief. They had experiences where if we could say, what would bring me joy and confidence, those would be it. And yet, even though they seemed to individually have everything they needed for belief and joy, it was in the coming together that the joy they had individually multiplied in community. It was once said that grief grows greater by concealing and joy by expression. And here we see the beautiful joy of gospel fellowship and gospel community. Here the Holy Spirit so worked in the assembly of John and Mary and Elizabeth that it gave these wonderful humans experiences which didn't happen in private. It gave John ears to hear. It gave Elizabeth words to say. It gave Mary the privilege of encouraging another merely by showing up. The gospel brings people together even in the midst of confusing circumstances. And even in all of the barriers and burdens of life, joy can follow where saints gather. Here Elizabeth is learning to live for a season of life with a mute husband, which maybe that's your dream if you're a wife. But here we can assume for the sake of me who is a husband, a burden. Mary is learning to live as an unwed pregnant woman. And yet in the midst of all of this, when they came together, God worked in both of their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Beginning January 9th, we're going to start a sermon series here at Sovereign Hope, walking through what we do when we gather as a church and how it impacts our desire to share our joy together. We believe that God works individually, and we praise God for that. But we also believe that God works in a profound way when we gather together. And we see this not only in Luke chapter 1, but notice how Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 3. As he's praying for the church, he says this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is with all the saints with all the saints at church, with all the saints at community group, with all the saints in discipleship, with all the saints in counseling, with all the saints in tears, with all the saints in joy, with all the saints in glory, that we experience the multidimensional love and breadth and height and weight of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. The gospel brings us a shared joy. Because just as Jesus bore his sins in our body on that cross, it was in his resurrection that he promised a new body, the church, where we now gather together with the weight of everything and we fight for and reap the benefit of the promise of God's shared joy amongst the saints. And the spirit-empowered utterance of Elizabeth gives way in the narrative to another powerful song, a song of joy from Mary herself. And we'll read this song together, verses 46 through 45. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this song is one of those few songs that has a title that people have given to it. It's called Mary's Magnificat. If you've got the ESV translation, that's the heading that's given to it. And it's one of the most famous song prayers in all of the Bible. It's one that many people know. It's a staple of the Advent season. And it should demand much of our attention. And that's because we see, first of all, another portrait of joy in this song. And this is Mary's thoughtful joy. And it's thoughtful joy because some scholars believe that this couldn't possibly be a song from Mary in this text, that Luke had to add it afterwards because who can come up with a song like this on the spot? And additionally, they point out that unlike Elizabeth, which we just saw, and unlike Zechariah, who we'll see next week, where they are explicitly and uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no mention of that specific special indwelling with Mary at this time. But this is where we can see two things when we look at the book of Luke. First, Luke constantly displays Mary as one who is extremely thoughtful. She is, of all things, a thinker, a ponderer, one who often marvels and considers all that she is taking in. And this thoughtful woman just completed what would probably have been a 50 to 70 mile journey without the help of car or train to visit her cousin. Last week, Mary was already leaving, considering the weighty promise of God, submitting herself into his service. And now she had this wonderful road trip to continually think, to dwell, and to write a beautiful song of celebration. But secondly, while she might not have been uniquely and explicitly filled by the Holy Spirit, as we see Elizabeth mentioned and Zechariah mentioned, she was remarkably rich with the Old Testament scriptures. One scholar says that in Mary's song, there's upwards of at least 12 explicit allusions and inclusions of other songs or prayers in the Old Testament. Specifically, uh, the prayer of Hannah, who herself miraculously conceived in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and uttered a prayer that is remarkably similar to Mary's and yet altogether distinct from Mary's. And here we see the wonderful power that scripture has upon us and a reminder that for you to be filled with scripture is to never be at want for the Holy Spirit. For as God indwells his word, so he indwells our own heart. To store up God's word in us is to cause the Holy Spirit in us to become agitated with joy inside of us. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 16 where he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It is the word of Christ, the word of the Lord, when we dwell on it, that we give away to encourage others. It is the word of Christ, when we dwell on it, that produces thanksgiving in our hearts. It is the word of Christ, when we dwell upon it, that leads us in song. Because it is the word of Christ and the word of God indwelt by the spirit of God that stirs in us the promise of God. Mary knew her experience, but her experience was aided and supplemented by the experience of other faithful saints in scripture. She wanted it all. And in looking at Hannah, who lived hundreds of years before She was encouraged. It gave her an outlet through which to process her emotions and the unknown and her joys and her fears. And what a great reminder that when we feel alone in our walk with the Lord, that not only do we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which we can remind ourselves of as we read God's word, but as we read God's word and we see other faithful, broken, saint sinners following Jesus, we know we never walk alone. That God was good, gracious, and faithful to them, and God will be good, gracious, and faithful to us. We want our church, when wrung, to leak God's word. We've done a Bible reading plan together as a church the last two years, and we're going to do it again this coming year. We're going to have a new Bible reading plan that's starting in January. We're actually going to have an app that goes with it so all of us can track and read together if you want to join with us. And it's going to have something new. It's going to have a Bible memory plan uh, baked into the app as well where we can memorize together God's word, and we can use that memorization to help us process our experiences and help us remind each other of our hope and help us worship when we don't feel like worshiping. What beautiful songs might we sing if we allow God's word to dwell richly inside of us? And, but it's not only where Mary's inspiration came from that's important, it's also the content that shows her thoughtfulness. Look at verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We touched last week on a little bit of how the Roman Catholic Church has terrible doctrines, not biblical doctrines, on Mary. And here we see another shot to the idolatry of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church. And that comes in her opening line where Mary herself expresses her need for a savior. What drives Mary's joyful song is that she is rejoicing in God, her savior, that what causes her to sing for God's praise is the fact that she is a sinner and God has sent redemption through the son of her own womb. And as a result of something so profound, she doesn't simply believe this miracle and move on and say, I understand, God fulfilled his promise, now I get to live my life. But instead, she desires to magnify it. I love and will always be, I don't know if it's a guy thing or if it's just a human thing, magnifying glasses, if I see one, I'm gonna play with it. 
Because you can like, at the, the different depths that you hold that lens, you can see different things, you can find where it's fuzzy and you can experiment. And here Mary is seeking to magnify, to hold at different angles the affections of her heart through the lens of God's promise so that she might zoom in and zoom out. And at the end of all of her thoughtfulness say, what a God this is, for he has done great things for me. She wants to make bigger the truths of God's promise in her own life, but she also wants to make bigger the truth of God's promise visibly in her life. She wants to live it out so as people see her, they see her great God. All of this, all of what God has done, all of her desire to magnify, all of God looking at her in her humble state, all of God doing something mighty in her is that she might have the world see the might and wonder of her God. May we never believe the lie that the gospel is Christianity 101, and once we believe it, we get to move on to more exciting doctrines. The gospel consumes the life of a believer for both personal and public joy as we learn to take that lens of Christ and move it in and out of our heart. And so what is thoughtful reflection and intentional magnification of God's promise look like in your life? Where have you ever sat down and said, how might I magnify the good news of the gospel in my heart and how I understand it or in my life and how I display it? This might begin this week. I'll give you some homework by simply doing a study on Mary's song here and noting all the things that God does in this text. This song is a song primarily about a God who does things. In fact, the first three chapters of Luke are all about God. There are humans involved in it, but the sense Luke wants us to get is this is God's story. This is God's promise, and he's enacting it through humans. When I spent time in Mary's words this week, I found 10 actions of God in this text. Go home and study it. See if you can find those 10. See if perhaps I missed some. And as you consider them, think to yourself what they communicate about the character of our God and how that stirs us to both worship him and live in light of it. That's thoughtful joy. But as Mary continues in her song, we see what's kind of the pivot of this whole song, and this is when she gets to a paradox, and that's the paradox of fearful joy. Look with me at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. At Christmas time, we turn to traditions and heirlooms because these things are bigger than us and they can get handed down from generation to generation. And generally, when we talk about heirlooms, we're talking about something that's made of greater quality. It's built to withstand the passing of time. But what we see in this text is the most valuable thing you could pass down to your children or to your friends, the thing that will never fade nor crumble, is the mercy of God. When you think about all the things, parents, that you are giving to your kids in life, are you giving them? Are you passing down to them the reliance they might have on God's mercy for them in Jesus Christ? We grow old, oak chests eventually break, retirement accounts get emptied, Even the mountains around our valley show the wear and exposure of the constant elements beating down on them. But God's mercy will never fail. 
It is always there, reliable, comforting, and profound. Yet his mercy, though accessible to anyone, is found only by those who fear him. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We've already seen what this fear looks like in experience because Elizabeth tells us what it is because it's something she affirms in Mary in verse 45 where Elizabeth proclaims, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She was blessed because she believed. Coming out of the book of Proverbs, the idea of God's fear is hopefully not foreign to us. And we've talked about fear as simply being a reverent reliance upon the Lord. And the gospel gives us a right kind of fear. It both kills fear and also keeps you with fear. You see, the gospel takes a sinner who has a true fear. And that fear is this. If I go near to God, I will die. God is so holy we're in this, and so other that we're in this dilemma. To be apart from God is to die. But to draw near to God is like gasoline to a fire, also to die. But when we see what the gospel does and how the death of Jesus changes things and how Jesus' death becomes our death, our fear changes. It changes from if I go near to God, I will die to the wonderful profession of faith. If I do not draw near to God, I will die. It sees God as our exclusive reliance that come what may, so long as we trust in God and submit ourselves to obedience, that Jesus Christ's sacrifice will keep us near and held. Here is mercy to all who humble themselves to come to the Lord. And this is very important for us to understand as Mary's song continues. Because if we don't understand that Jesus' gospel is for anyone and yet only for those who fear him, then what we read or what we see in what follows is perhaps that God universally hates all the powerful and the rich and there's no way for them to get to heaven and God universally loves the oppressed and if you're born into oppression, then you are privileged of all people and God will save you without any sort of responsibility or response being important to the individual. And our culture today loves the idea of humbling the powerful and exalting the vulnerable. But it's not because people are hungry in this text that they're saved. And it's not because the rich are fed that they are turned away, condemned. It's to say, even the hungry, even the poor, even the powerless, if they are to hope in a God like this, will be filled with all the good things of God. And even the powerful, even the smart, even the wealthy, if they do not fear the Lord, they'll be sent away empty they will perish. It's the exclusivity that Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, where he says this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What matters most in your life is not primarily your fortunes or your influence, but your fear. It is to whom you belong. Do you belong in the promises of wealth and power and riches? Do you belong even to the position of poverty and being powerless? Or do you belong to Christ? Have you come to him in fear? 
To come to Jesus is to get this mercy, and we can really bank on this, but this mercy that has this fearful joy that we are both terrified and also wonderfully excited to draw near to God in Jesus Christ that is also humbling. And this is the next aspect of Mary's joy, humble joy. And that is to see this, that to be saved by Jesus is to realize that God privileges things the world doesn't. To be saved by Jesus is to realize God privileges things the world doesn't. And to see that is to humble yourself. Read with me this in Luke 1, 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So there was once this missionary to India and he was warned not to preach Mary's song. And he asked why. And one other uh, official in the area said, quote, it is the most revolutionary canticle. And that is to live as a person oppressed in a land by a foreign government, this song smacked of revolution, of a complete turning over of the social order. But the truth of the matter is that Mary's song, Mary's hope, and the gospel that we believe in is a promise of a total inversion of the world's social order. Now we need to talk about this briefly because there's a false gospel that many churches are adopting which is called the social gospel. And it's not that the social gospel is after the wrong things. It's after actually the right things and the wrong priority, which is how most heresy starts. It's the same way the prosperity gospel goes wrong. And the social gospel believes that the church and the goal of the church is to eliminate all inequality or poverty in the world. But the mission of the church and the goal of the church is not something the church gets to make up. It's something Jesus himself, who is our head, gives us. In Matthew 28, where he says to the church, go and make disciples of all nations, equally so, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has given. Additionally, proponents of the social gospel believe that all of us would be good and kind and gracious and we would have this ode to joy as our true reality if only we could eliminate authority, inequality, and poverty. That those are the real problems and to remove those is to cause humanity to flourish. But inequality and poverty and abuses of authority are symptoms of the problem, not the source. The Bible shows us that our symptom is sin. James, this week in our Bible reading plan, we were in it and it talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. Is it not capitalism? That's not what he says. Is it not communism? That's not what it says. Is it not that there are some rich and some poor? That's not what he says. He says, is it not that the passions inside of you are at war? Our problem is an internal problem of sin. And you can make everyone equal, but sin will still reign. Which is important because it means that we can try to save people from poverty. And we, can tr- and we should. And Jesus talks about that. We're going to get there. But to actually bring the elimination of poverty and the elimination of equality in the world is to do nothing for anyone's eternity. You could wrap the world in goodwill 
and peace. But unless our sin is dealt with, that is no salvation at all. The social gospel is a dangerous and no gospel at all. But the true gospel does have a social impact. If the, just because poverty and inequality aren't the, the problem doesn't mean the church needs to be unconcerned with the problem. If the idea of caring for those who are hurting and in need around you, if the idea of assessing your own heart and where you might privilege people who live like or look like you is uncomfortable for you, you should leave now because it's gonna get a lot more uncomfortable with the Jesus that's presented in the book of Luke. It's made me uncomfortable as we've studied it or as I've studied it for this series. And we're gonna see this unfold more as the story moves forward. But for right now, the Old Testament theme, which Mary is bringing out clearly in this text, is meant to challenge your joy in one specific area, and that's this. Would you rather find your promise for joy in the promises of the world or the promises of God's salvation? It's challenging us to humble our perception of joy. To trust in the thoughts, thrones, and riches of the world is to find yourself one day unequipped and condemned. God's not opposed to brains, positions, or money, but he knows that those who have those things often find themselves trusting in those things, trusting in the pride of their own thoughts, finding comfort in the security of their own power, and finding their love in money instead of their love in God himself. Similarly, those who are born in oppression or poverty are not born into this special, uniquely privileged state that means you're automatically saved by God. But it is a position in which people generally see not their pride, but their powerlessness. And yet without the gospel, what those who have hope in because they have it, those who have not might hope in that they might one day gain it. That those who are powerless and afflicted might look at their weaknesses and see their problem and they might say, if only I had that power, if only I had that thought, if only I had those riches. But here's the wonderful good news of the gospel where it comes to those who are powerless and it says, everything you want is found ultimately in the God who will one day wipe the slate clean, who will level the scales of justice, where everyone will get their just desserts. To put your faith in Jesus is to put your faith in the only social inversion which can actually satisfy us. Satisfy both our wants and satisfy both our desire for justice. And so when we come to this social inversion, when we come to this revolutionary gospel, we need to realize that it's only dangerous if we don't trust the king. The king who's trying to bring it in your own heart. The Christian church can have, will have, will always have until Jesus comes back, what it looks like to follow this in reality. But the point is, is I encourage you first to think about what this revolution looks like in your own heart. John has already told us that this gospel proclaimed is going, or Gabriel told us this gospel proclaimed turns hearts towards God and hearts towards others. Philippians 2 shows us that it's this incarnation of Jesus, which is the seedbed for humility in our own hearts. It's the spring from which we draw to consider others as worthy of more honor than ourselves. And if we trust this king, then viewing ourselves with humility is actually for our joy and only to be feared if our hope is in the power of the world instead of the pleasure 
of God. And lastly, Mary shows us hopeful joy. Read with me verses 54 through 56. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. So here at the end of Mary's song, she encourages Elizabeth and encourages us today, all who are waiting on the Messiah, that here at the birth of Christ, God remembers his mercy. You might have thought that God has forgotten you. You might look at the power and the riches and the thrones of the world and say, if I don't have those, has God forgotten me? But here we remember that God never forgets his mercy and she stretches this all the way back to Abraham and to those who came after Abraham. If God met their promise here, will he not meet your promise here as well? And for those of us who sit this side of the cross, we have the privilege of seeing the fullness of God's story fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know of all people that God is faithful. And next week we're gonna trace out the faithfulness of God's promise in Zechariah's song. Stephen's gonna be leading us in that. But this week I want us to see that in the fulfillment of God's promise, he actually promises help. Isn't that beautiful? That God has come to help us in the midst of this. He says he has come to help his servant, Israel. As we follow Jesus and we try to turn our circumstances into joy, it is difficult It requires thoughtfulness. It requires responsibility. It requires humility. It requires effort. And it might feel like this seems unattainable, but God in Jesus Christ has promised to help you, to draw near to you as you attempt to follow Jesus. And as Jesus sends out his church, which we looked at earlier, he gives them both the task to do, but he also gives them the power in which they will do it. Look back at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God has promised to walk with us in joy. And as we attempt to follow Jesus, we might have the privilege of rejoicing in all God gives us. And one day we might say with the rest of the saints that he who is mighty has done a great thing for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you fill us with a spirit of joy. Joy that comes not in the changing seasons or in families and holidays, but joy that comes when we drink deeply from the well of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you do these things as you gave them to Mary. Though Mary did not need to have an additional sign of confidence, you gave it to her. So Lord, we humbly ask that you fill us with joy that produces wonderful confidence. Confidence which we confess, confidence which we sing. We pray this in your name. Amen.